Hello, and welcome to episode 70 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. This is Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Carl Bialik. Hi there, Carl. Hi there, Jeff. Carl is also the host of the 30 Love Tennis podcast, which has a extensive back catalog of 30-minute or less conversations with various people from around the tennis world, so be sure to check that out if you're not already familiar and subscribing and regularly listening. I'm sure as we enter the U.S. tennis season and the U.S. Open in several weeks, Carl will have a lot of new material for us there, so we can look forward to that. At the moment, we are still riding the high of the Wimbledon finals. Um, we're recording this on Sunday evening, so we're, we're just sort of making sense of the five hours of tennis between Federer and Djokovic today, and um, not to give a short shrift to the much shorter but also historic women's final yesterday between Serena Williams and Simona Halep. Before we get started on the, on the match, one thing that a lot of our listeners uh, mentioned or asked about was... We spent a lot of time on, on last week's episode uh, making forecasts for the, the fourth round of Wimbledon, the Manic Monday matches. And what we did is what we've done a couple of times on the podcast now where I recorded our ELO forecasts. I noted what the, the market said about the matches. I made forecasts. And then on the show, Carl made the forecast. So these weren't cross-contaminated in, in any way. We weren't anchoring each other's forecasts or anything like that. Hopefully it was bias-free except for the the other biases we have about being dumb about things. Uh, a lot of people were asking if we if we evaluated them. Some people suggested that they were going to do it, but didn't get around to it. Anyway, I did, and the winner of, of the the forecasting contest that wasn't really a contest is my co-host Carl Bialik. Congratulations, Carl! You know, I was gunning for top two, but I really never thought I could I could win. So this is really special. I, I know I didn't ask you to prepare a speech, so that'll, that'll suffice. Um, where you really made a difference here, I'm not sure how much to attribute this to, to skill in forecasting or whether, whether the gods were working in your favor, but you were pretty consistently more moderate than me and Elo and the, the betting market. And even though the men, seven of the eight favorites ended up advancing, only three of the eight favorites uh, won on the women's side. And... That meant that I think if we averaged your forecasts, you you were predicting 71% of the winners would advance, and I think the market was 77, Elo and I were 76 or so. It's not a huge difference, but but you were more open to the possibility that there'd be some surprises, and uh, none of us nailed all the surprises correctly, because I think we were all pretty confident about um, Ronich over Pella and Pliskova over Mukova, but um, you... you, you did do a better job at reflecting the uncertainty on some of the other ones that ended up flipping, like um, Zhang Shui over Diana Yastrzemska, and, and maybe you also were a little bit ahead on risk over Barty. Uh, I want to come back to Barty eventually, but we've clearly got a lot of tennis to talk about in the meantime. So Carl, men's final, Djokovic over Federer, barely, barely, barely. We saw the first 12-12 tiebreak in a singles match in tennis history. We got we got one in men's doubles, I think one in mixed doubles also. Um, but let's start there. In, we have a, we have five, five hours of tennis, ultimately decided by one seven-point tiebreak. What do you think? Is this, is this a good move, or would you would you prefer we were recording in you know four hours after after we got to 70, 68 again? <laughs> or beyond. 
I think it's hilarious that there were 254 pro singles um, matches and the 254th was the one that got it and it was the men's final. And I think it's hilarious because what I've heard Federer and others say in the past is, yeah, we probably do need to have some sort of cap on matches in the earlier rounds where you can really just mess up the schedule for that court and for the players for that day and for the tournament. And um, there's just there's just no way to, to plan for it. And also, it is often a matchup that people really don't need to see nearly that much tennis for. Uh, but for the final, hey, these guys are not going to play again for a while. And this is the 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 highlight of the tournament, the women's and men's singles finals. And the idea that you would cut those short if they're so closely matched that they get to that stage, um, when when all eyes are watching and you know viewership among people who might not have even seen anything before the deciding set just could keep rising and rising. Um, it, it just seems a little backward. So I think that was kind of bad luck for Wimbledon. On the other hand, you do ha- have the possibility of incredibly close matchups in the final between two of the best players in the world. So uh, I think this was not the match that the, that the rule was designed for and that maybe if the rule makers had known what was going to happen, they would have set it to only be in place for matches before the semis or before the final. Yeah, I, I was also surprised that this is the matchup that turned it out being the one. It, it's not surprising that Federer's involved because he's he's gone past six all many a time. There was the Olympics match against Ronich, I think. Is Del Potro. Right? Del Potro, it's Sanger Ronich I'm thinking of. So yes, against Del Potro, uh, there was the, the match against Anderson last year at Wimbledon. So he's he's done this before. I mean, he... Eight six in the in the Nadal final in nine seven, nine seven. I I'm gonna give numbers to illustrate all my points, and then Carl's going to correct them all. Um, I mean the 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 Roddick final. What was that? Sixteen fourteen. Did I get that one? Yeah, I think you're right on that one. Yeah, but you're skeptical because I said it. Right? <laughs> that's where that's coming from. Something was seventeen fifteen, and that might have been Del Potro. Those two. One was one. One was the other. Okay, so yeah, I think I think that we've got that right. But in any case, it's not a surprise to see Federer in a match like this. But all those other people we're talking about are are also big servers, known for having a pretty big mismatch between their service game and their return game. Djokovic is the opposite of that. So, I mean, I, the the way this played out, that the, the sets that weren't tie breaks were came because Federer broke serve, not because uh, not because Djokovic broke serve. That's a big surprise here. I mean, we. We exchanged some forecasts beforehand uh, on on what the odds were. We, we, we would reach a fifth set, and that's a, partly a separate question. Uh, I mean, it seemed like there's a decent chance we we get to a fifth set. I think our consensus was around, I don't know, thirty percent, forty percent, something like that. But I mean, would, do you agree with me here? I mean, this is this is not the sort of matchup where you'd expect to see it go beyond six six in the fifth set. Yeah, or even probably even get to 6-6 or, or to have three tie breaks in a match. Yeah, I mean, and, and it wasn't your conventional 12-all, if there's such a thing as a conventional 12-all, in that there were two breaks each. So it's not like they were just serve-botting their way there, and there were a lot of close service games in that last set. And not to mention Federer having two championship points um, and, and then Djokovic coming back and breaking, which is not what you'd expect from a set that is uh, so long. Um, because you just generally it's just low probability to have breaks because you need a break right after it once you get past six all. So yeah, it, 
it's definitely not what you'd expect. It was unlikely we got there. It just seems like once we got there, it was it was it was exactly the time you needed this rule the least or wanted this rule the least. So if if you had the ear of the Wimbledon planning board or whoever's making these decisions, w- would you suggest getting rid of the, the tiebreak rule for, let's say, semifinals forward or finals only or something like that? I think I would do finals only. I think this was motivated partly by or largely by the Isner-Anderson 26-24 last year or 24-26, given the order of the players I gave. And Anderson just looking spent for the first two sets of the final. I mean, he probably... It's not surprising if he had been straight-setted otherwise, but I expect he would have not been broken as much without such a taxing semi, which followed a really taxing long quarter. That may have been 17-15, actually, with um, Federer losing to Anderson in the quarters in, in a long fifth set. So, yeah, I think I think it would make sense to take it away for the final. I also think eventually we're going to get to the place where Wimbledon matches the U.S. Open, and this is just a tiebreak after 6-all. I think 12-all is a way to sort of ease the pain for the traditionalists, but there's no particular reason to, to make it go to some arbitrary number of games. So, yeah, I think I think that's going to end up being the sweet spot, and I hope they get there. 6-all, tiebreak, before the final, and then let the final roam free. Yeah, I definitely agree with, with matching the tiebreak to the set length. I mean, it... it I'm sure some traditionalists will always have some problem with the tie break and the Australian Open went a little a little weird with their decision to have the 10 point tie break to decide a fifth set but this seems more backwards to me the idea that you have a 24 game set that is then decided by a first to seven tie break it's it just seems out of balance kind of I don't know whether a, a 10 point or a 12 point tie break would be better and Please, if you are listening, anyone from Wimbledon, do not do something else entirely new. Just for my sanity, don't do it. But yes, follow Carl's advice instead and, and just switch to a standard 6-6 final set. Uh, now, Carl, one thing that's come up in a lot of our discussions like this is is the idea that there should be different rules for, for different stages of the tournament. So in this case, we're suggesting dropping the final set tiebreak for the finals. Uh, there's there's a long history of, of men's tournaments that had a five-set final. Even the women's uh, tour championships did that for a few years. So there, there's even some some tradition behind that, having best of three matches for an entire tournament and then a different format in the final. Some people who dislike best of five or are willing to compromise on best of five think the solution is like best of three for the first week or first four rounds or something of slams and then go best of five. It seems like that's never really on the table. Like all tournaments have been willing to to experiment quite a bit, but this is something they're not willing to do. Is there, I don't understand why, is there some reason you can think of that would explain why this isn't on the table or why this isn't a good idea? Uh, I mean, I think it feels pretty radical, although I think we've covered this before on the show that there were some tor- some slams that had best of three on the men's side in the um, in the 70s, I think. I think it's happened at times because of political upheaval in Paris, maybe at times because of weather, just like necessity forced it and the show goes on and we don't like put an asterisk next to the winners of those tournaments. So I think it's not as radical as maybe it seems to people. I also think maybe it's just we haven't gotten there yet. Like, I think the fact that we saw two big changes in the same year 
to the scoring formats of two Grand Slam tournaments goes to show that maybe this is just a matter of gradual change and that, you know, there are there are a lot of traditionalists probably in the decision making bodies and takes time for them to change their minds or, or change their, their position on the board. But I think it will be on the table at some point. I don't know if it'll actually happen, but it it makes sense to at least explore it. And, you know, I think we have seen um, already things like that in other formats, like some of the formats having no ad scoring and the, the third set tiebreak, even at slams. So, you know, I think that it's often those are the ones where change happens more quickly because there, there's just less of a sort of spotlight and seen more as a place to, to try things out. So I think gradually we will see things bleed over. But yeah, may, maybe there is something special about like during this event, the rules will change as you progress from round to round. Maybe that just rubs rubs some people the wrong way, even though it has happened at tour events, like you said. Well, maybe this is something that, that we need to tack on to the next gen finals rules. So we have best of five fast four sets for the through the round robin but then the semifinals in the final are best of seven fast four sets yeah in 2046 that will have been what that'll be what traditionalists are defending as other people are looking to go to best of one point winner takes all i mean at that at that point world team tennis will just be a racket tossing contest oh by then it'll have long since moved on to something way more radical that our 2019 brains just can't comprehend. I mean, probably Racket Lawn. <laughs> racket Lawn will be everything, yeah. <laughs> World Team Racket Lawn. Yeah, that will be the first sign of the singularity when all sports have been uh, have all been ingested into the the great brain of Racket Lawn. Um, so, in the, onto the tennis itself. You mentioned Carl. We had we had those breaks in the in the fifth set. Federer missed chances with championship points. Uh, one thing that a lot of people are highlighting is the fact that Federer won on points. Let's say like pretty much every statistical category except for unforced errors. I think Federer was better than Djokovic. I mean, he won fifty one point seven percent of the points played. His dominance ratio, so the ratio of, of his return points won to Djokovic's return points won was. 1.16, and it's pretty rare that anything over one results in a loss, and very rare that anything over 1.1 results in a loss. So uh, I think this is, maybe it was uh, the third the third highest DR of a, of a match he lost, and one of them was the, the Kevin Anderson match last year, which was 1.17 instead of 1.16. Um, if you plug in their their serve and return win rates over the course of the match and just randomly distribute points rather than like looking at what actually happened, Federer has a seventy seven percent percent chance of winning. So the way they played overall, like the, the it's game set match Federer. Uh, was there anything that Djokovic or Federer did that that, that lent them lent the match this this flavor of of the big points tilting the other direction from the rest of the points? Uh, well, you know, just to expand on those stats, which, which may help answer the question. Sometimes if you see a scoreline like this, where one, the winner won three tiebreak sets and the loser won two sets in which he had net, you know, plus four breaks, 
So overall for the match plus four breaks, you could think, okay, well, he was much better in those two sets and then, you know, slightly worse in the three sets. But actually in two of the three sets that Federer lost or that Djokovic won, uh, Federer had a higher DR. It had a DR above one. He had more return points one percentage, higher return points one percentage than Djokovic did. So that that suggests, and you know, obviously he had a lower return points one percentage than Djokovic in the tiebreakers. So it meant that Federer had more chances within those sets to avoid uh, tiebreakers by winning the set outright and couldn't quite do it. So, so that was a big part of it. And then obviously he was outplayed in the tie breaks. Uh, the commentators seemed to think he was pressing more in the tie breaks. He was taking more chances. I think partly what was happening is that he wasn't uh, winning. He wasn't just winning with his serve as much. So on his service points, he was hitting aggressive ground strokes. And you have to be very aggressive with a ground stroke for it to count as aggressive against someone as good at turning defense to offense as Djokovic. So those will often result in unforced errors and lost points. So I think that was a big part of it. Just too many returns were coming back. And Djokovic, as you've written before, can just neutralize the server's advantage more comprehensively and quickly than basically everyone. So um, th- that that's what struck me in the tiebreakers. And I think the commentators were right in general about the, the outcome of, of that pattern and in in those sets yeah i mean federer was getting into a lot of djokovic service games but not uh generating enough break points and and then djokovic came up with big serves on break points but at this point we're talking about tiny samples that can just be fluky and um you know it's hard to say repeatable on the other hand this is the third big grand slam match in which djokovic saved two match points and came back to beat federer in a fifth set so um even if that's a fluke and a small sample size, it certainly feels like something very big and tangible. And, and I, I think weighed on Federer, at least after the match today. Um, but yeah, I mean, all of this adds up to, hey, a couple of points going differently. Like the first set tiebreak, Fed was up 5-3. If he won that and then cruised through the second, I think he would have won and probably won in three or four. Yeah, and this is something that's come up. I mean, people have been talking about this for a long time, that, that Federer does sort of have a knack for losing matches where he wins more than half of the points. Uh, I mean, it happens to everybody sometimes, but it seems to happen to him the most. And, like, my take on that always seems to be, like, it, it sounds like a bad thing, but it just means he's he's winning even more points than you'd think, looking at his already amazing career. Uh, so... It's just it's like like the conversation that always comes up when when you talk about missed break points. Like yes, not converting break points is bad, but it means you had them, and and that's a good thing. So, I mean, if if we look at it as a fifty fifty match, where as far as I know, everyone uh, was expecting Djokovic to be the favorite going in, then I mean, this is a win for Federer. I mean, it won't feel like a win because I mean he got the wrong trophy and um, and he he had opportunities to convert that he didn't, but. I don't know, the fact that he was there at all is is pretty remarkable. Um, I wrote something this morning about the backhand. Um, I've been talking about the Federer backhand for a while. It was the one of the big stories after the the Australian Open final two years ago when it, the backhand seemed to be more of a weapon and more tailored to neutralizing Nadal's ground strokes. But when I dug into the numbers about in the Federer-Djokovic matchup, 
uh, it's never never really been much of a weapon against Djokovic. And in a, a few recent losses, Federer's backhand has been quite bad, or at least ineffective. Um, Djokovic isn't allowing him to get winners or setting up winners off of it. Um, but I did I did run my backhand potency stat based on the, the the match charting stats we've already got for the final today, and it was one of Federer's best performances. His his backhand was roughly neutral, which is about career average, and to, to post a career average ground stroke stat against Novak Djokovic, that's that that also feels like a win. I mean, his 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 career record against Djokovic is worse than that. Uh, does that tally with with what you saw, Carl? Do you think the backhand was working for him today? Um, I think it had a lot of highs and lows, so it was hard when processing the match to figure out where it netted out. I mean, I think this is one of those cases where having the data is so helpful. Like, I had specific ideas in the match of patterns that weren't working for him, and again, the sample might be so small that it would be hard to say if that was real. Like, it felt to me like every time Federer hit his kind of classic short, low backhand slice cross court, which has won him a whole lot of matches and money and, and lost Andy Roddick a, a lot of hair, um, that it just was totally futile against Djokovic, that every time he either slid a backhand up the line deep and low or hit a screaming cross court shot that won the point. So uh, there, there were things he was doing that didn't seem to quite work, but he also hung in on a lot of cross-court backhand rallies better than I've seen him in other Djokovic matches. He also hit a lot of uh, really effective backhands down the line, which the incredibly prompt match chart for the match and the match charting project uh, corroborates in terms of his success when hitting that shot. And his, um, his slice down the line seemed to really bother Djokovic and then also just in a five-hour match like the slices seemed to add up like it really seemed like Djokovic was struggling more later on in bending low and hitting an aggressive shot than he was earlier in the match so yeah I think it was about as well as you could hope for on the other hand it was on grass and I, I wouldn't expect him to do the same the next time they meet if it's on a different surface which it probably will be. Yeah, one of the matches that stuck out in in the recent head-to-head was the Cincinnati match last year that Djokovic won that one six four six four, which might understate how how dramatic how big of a win it was or how big the gap was between the two of them. Uh, at, in that match, Federer's uh, backhand potency was negative ten, which meant that six or seven points were determined determined by the backhand. Like, he would have won six or seven more points within, with an average backhand performance. Um, and that wasn't the only time he's he's been as, as low as minus 10 against Djokovic, but I think the hard courts will, would work in Novak's favor. Um, which is a nice segue to another question I wanted to bring up, was another thing I, I've written about this week is is the conditions. There's so much talk about the, the grass being slow this year, or this is a, a sort of meta issue. I, I'm instinctually saying it was the grass that was slow, but it probably wasn't the grass that was slow. It was probably the balls or the weather or the weather interacting with the balls. I mean, it, it, from what I've heard about the test that the Wimbledon groundskeepers were running and maybe also the ITF was running on the surface, uh, the surface does not vary very much, if at all, from from last year. Whereas the, my stats uh, and the impression of pretty much every player who was asked about it all pointed towards the conditions being slower, but regardless of what we should how, what we should call that or uh, 
or what the what the direct what the causes are exactly um do you think that the conditions played a role at all in today's match that the maybe they helped Federer to keep it close. I mean, he, 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 he did serve really well. He got, he got a lot of cheap points on his serve. Do you think that the conditions were working in his favor? Uh, I mean, I think it was, Wimbledon was playing today like it had been for the last two weeks or fortnight, as they like to say. And your post makes sense to me. That's kind of neutral between them. Like, I, I think that, um, it, it worked well enough for Federer to to get a lot of points on his serve, as you said, and also to be effective at the net. Um, but it it also you know made Djokovic's service game more formidable, and his flat shots worked pretty well on grass. And you know it wasn't so lightning fast that um, Federer was just serve and volleying his way to love holds. So uh, yeah, I, I think the idea that this this conditions don't really matter. In this matchup, like you can, you can kind of make cases for both of them in in both conditions against each other, um, and it it's they're just so closely matched. I mean, Djokovic is now up 26-22. So many of the the wins on both sides were were really close, um, and they've beaten each other on both surfaces on all surfaces many times. So yeah, I didn't see anything today that seemed obviously to to favor one over the other. Do you think that the conditions changed the dynamic of the Federer Nadal match? Because I mean, that, that's what prompted me to write about it in the first place. That uh, that you would think that slower conditions would would favor Nadal. Uh, and my my sort of quick and dirty research suggested that it it took it from a close a close match in favor of Federer, if it were more historical fast grass to being slightly in favor of Nadal, given the way it's playing this week. Obviously, it didn't work out that way. Federer won a pretty routine match by their standards. But do you think that the the conditions played much of a role there? Yeah, I mean, I think you can't really say whether it played out that way or not. You, you It could be that the conditions favored Nadal a bit and Federer overcame that by playing a much better match. And, and that's kind of how it looked to me that... Um, Nadal didn't even play poorly, I don't think, but that Federer played well enough to overcome a Wimbledon setting that wasn't the best he's had against Rafa. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I keep, um, I, it's probably in the match sharing project as well. I was looking for like the win win percentage of points by rally length for that match, but they, they kept noting really long rallies that Federer was winning against Rafa. They did not feel like Wimbledon rallies, but... Federer, unlike usual, was coming out on top in rallies in which he maybe had to hit five or six backhands and and run from one side of the court to the other. So, and, and you know that that's also a signal of just how high his level was today against Djokovic that he was able to um, to ha- to hang in on really long rallies against an opponent who normally dominates them and also do it over and over again over a really long match and it as you said win on everything but the final scoreboard so one weird dynamic for both the men's final and the women's final now is is the news is mostly about the losers Um, and that's entirely because of who the losers ended up being i mean no matter who won these matches the the media was going to focus on 
Federer and was going to, going to focus on Serena Williams. I mean, they're the ones with the, the all-time leads in Grand Slams. They're the, you know, they're emblematic of their, of the sport. Uh, but you know, it, it does feel like we're, we're giving Djokovic the short shrift here. I mean, pretty much everything we've talked about has been from the Federer perspective. And, and yes, full disclosure, we're both Federer fans, and I've gone through my share of RF hats over the years. Probably not as many as, as Roger's dad has, but still quite a few. Um, but, I mean, it, it seems like Djokovic is such a, such a reliable character at the top of the game. He's sort of the, he's sort of the test for any player who, who wants to, to challenge for the top spot. And the fact that Federer came close, that becomes the story that like against the, against the unbeatable player, he almost won. But there's surely more to it than that. Uh, I mean, is there anything, anything in particular, you notice today that Djokovic is doing that, that, that was impressive or things that, that, worked to counteract what Roger was doing? I mean, what what should our takeaways be here from about the player who actually won the won the match? Yeah, I mean, he's... Well, he, so he's just big picture beyond today. Like, he's he's played Federer three times in finals at Wimbledon and, and, and won them every time, and that's incredible. Um, granted, this was Federer of 30-plus in each case, but... He Federer was like playing near his his best, I think, in those three tournaments, and Djokovic stopped him. I don't think this was Djokovic's best performance, but it it was maybe his most clutch. I mean, he really there were moments when Novak will at times just for reasons that aren't clear, like suddenly drop his level a lot, or his level will drop a lot in matches. And I guess that happens to everyone, and I don't know how to quantify it, so maybe it's just my impression, but he had some of those moments today. I mean, certainly his level dropped a lot in the six, one, three break second set, but he never seemed to drop out of the match. And he was, I, I think just at his best and his most sort of aggressive wall, like (laughs) at the really big moments, um, a wall that punches you back. I mean, he was just like, absorbing everything and then suddenly taking control of points and, and sending Federer chasing balls. And um, the, the way he was able to kind of turn that on when he most needed it was impressive. He obviously couldn't at all moments in the match or wouldn't have gone to the, to the very last possible moment. But um, to be able to do that against Federer playing as well as he was on grass really, you know, explains why he's won four of the last five majors. It explains why he's in a really good position to pass Federer for the most weeks at number one before he even takes on the most major titles record. So um, it's it's hard to, like, say that much about Novak in this match because we did just say that Federer statistically was the better player. But, you know, he did enough of the incredible things that Novak always does, just incredible ground strokes, incredible defense, uh, a lot of great serves, a lot of very precise serves, not as good as Federer in that department, but still really effective. Um, and he he was at his best in, in really important points when losing them would have meant the match. Yeah, that was definitely the difference today. Um, so, you, yeah, you point out that he's... He's racking up weeks at number one. He's now up to 16 slams behind 20 for Federer and 18 for Rafa. It seems like 
every every additional slam he wins, obviously it closes the gap, so it makes it more likely that he uh, he reaches Rafa and Federer or overtakes them. But also, it 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 seems like it makes him look even stronger. I mean, the the thing that we've talked about a lot in the podcast is that you can't really predict downfalls. I mean, you, no one predicted when Djokovic fell off the the face of the earth last time a few years ago. So I don't think we're going to see some steady, predictable decline from him, at least anytime soon. So every every slam he sticks around and wins or is really competitive at seems to make it more likely that he's going to stick around even longer. And to me, especially since he, he didn't manage to, to win at Roland Garros, the fact that he bounced back, this wasn't a routine win, but it was pretty routine up until today's match. Um seems like he, he's in as strong, if not a stronger position going into the U.S. Open. I mean, would you agree with that? Do you think he's the, I mean, I think, I don't even need to ask if he's the favorite for the U.S. Open, but do you think he's as much of a favorite for the U.S. Open as he was going into Wimbledon? Oh, bigger. I, I mean, I think that maybe the only thing working against him is that maybe Rafa has a better chance at the U.S. Open than at Wimbledon, although Rafa now has two straight um, close semifinal losses at Wimbledon. So I don't know if we can still think think of him that way. But yeah, I mean, I think um, Federer is more dangerous at Wimbledon as he's shown in recent years. And I think Djokovic is better on hard courts in general and has, has dominated them, uh, including outside of majors. So yeah, I, I, I like, <laughs> I guess it's weird. It's weird in the sense that if he had, if he had lost here, then maybe he would be less of a favorite for the U.S. Open because he he wouldn't have come in with the win and it would have said something about his level. But I would have I would have taken it as well. He lost because this is Wimbledon and it's been incredible. They, he was able to win it four times going into this year, but it's not his best or favorite surface. And the U.S. Open is is going to be very tough for everybody else. Yeah, certainly by the numbers, he would have been the strong favorite going into the U.S. Open, regardless of how this one turned out. But but yeah, also by the numbers, because it did turn out this way, is he's going to be even bigger. The one the one question, I mean, I, I agree with you about it, uh, about this being Federer slam. He's not as much of a, of a threat on hard court, though he's still someone you'd expect to see in the semis or maybe the final. Um, but I wonder about the rest of the field. I mean, there will be a day either in September or maybe in 2023. We don't know when, but eventually these guys are going to stop winning. Someone else is, someone a lot younger is going to show up and start winning matches at a really high level. Maybe that's Sitsapaz, maybe that's Aljay Aliassime. It seems like a lot of those guys are more likely to win on, win on hard, maybe possibly clay, but at least this year didn't really get their footing on grass. I mean, Sitsapaz lost in the first round. Aljay Aliassime had a very winnable third round match that he lost. Um, We didn't see a lot of prospects really make waves here. I think there was a record for the average age of the quarterfinalists. Um, So, I mean, if if you wanted new faces in the quarterfinals, you got Guido Pella, who's 32, I think. Um, Do you think that, that, that the next, next, next gen, whatever gen we're on right now, do you think they're more of a threat at the U S open than, than they were going into Wimbledon? Yeah, I mean, maybe this is recency bias, but I guess I wasn't even considering them. I was thinking of them as, you know, like adding them all up to be a negligible share of win probability for any Grand Slam at this point. Uh, and maybe that's unfair because Tsitsipas made the semis at the Australian. Um, and 
yeah, I mean, there, there, there's some possibility there. By the way, Pella is 29, but, um, you know. I'm, I'm ahead of the curve again. You're going to listen to this in three years and think, wow, I can't believe Jeff predicted that Pella would live to his 32nd birthday. Oh, God. Uh, but I did. Mark it ho- down. And hopefully to his 132nd. We, we, we love you. Um, for sure, of course. I, I think there's something to it. You know, you made the point to me during the tournament when we were talking about the age of the men's. Uh, I think we were talking about the semifinalists at that point because they, they were all 32 plus maybe. Um or 31 plus, sorry, sorry, RBA. And, you know, you were saying maybe like grass, just because there's so few tournaments and so few opportunities, it just takes longer to, to reach your best level on that surface. So it, it favors the older guys. And I'm, I'm curious if, if you have more thoughts on that. It makes a lot of sense to me intuitively, but then I also think of like all the famous young champions at Wimbledon of, of long ago, granted, but we're not getting young champions anywhere now. Yeah, I'm not sure. And it, 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 my position is the same as yours. It's it's very intuitively appealing, especially when you have results like this year. When um, when not only did we have record-setting age on the on the men's side, but even though we had Corey Goff as a counterexample on the women's side, we also had Barbara Streetseva, who's you know, I think it was our first Grand Slam quarterfinal, let alone semifinal, and she's been around for a really long time. That, that seems like the stereotype of the type of player who wins with veteran wiles uh, and and not necessarily with a, with overpowering skills or shots. So yeah, I mean that's just a one off. We can't we can't build a theory around Barbara Streets of a uh, but but there is some evidence for that. And I'm also probably overweighting my own experience on grass courts, which is that the grass courts I played on were really really hard to play on. <laughs> but Wimbledon courts are different. Um, pros are in, I, admittedly a little bit better than I am at playing tennis and adjusting to the conditions. So maybe there's nothing there. Uh, I mean, I, I, the the boys champion, the the Japanese guy whose name I can't remember right now, he had never played on grass before he started practicing for this week. So I mean, you can adapt pretty quickly. I mean, Simona Halep, our women's winner, she grew up in a country without a single grass court. So, I mean, she's been coming to Wimbledon for a long time. She has a lot of grass courts and grass matches under her belt over the years. But um, but there's a limit to how much the experience helps. So may, maybe that this can be taken too far. And like you say, like plenty of, plenty of players have been very successful at a young age at Wimbledon. Uh, but it is something that I think is worth, worth looking into. Uh, maybe Wimbledon favors age even more than tennis in general seems to, to favor um, veteran experience and, and maybe intimidation these days. Shintaro Mochizuki. There you go, on the tip of my tongue. Thank you. So I've mentioned Serena and Simona a couple of times lately. This seems like a good time to transition over to talking about the, the women's final. This is another one, like I said before, the stories have mostly been about the loser since Serena was going for record-tying slam number 24. Um, she is still looking for her first slam as a mother. Uh, I mean, she's always the story, and and... Mostly rightfully so. But Simona was the one who played brilliantly, almost perfectly. The, one of the the key stats from that match was that she she had only three unforced errors, which is, I mean, yes, it was a short match. Yes, they were short points, but still, I mean, three unforced errors. Most players end up with more than three double faults over the course of a match against uh, a top player like Serena. So really astonishing. 
and it's not only the unforced errors, but I mean, she was she was playing perfectly, running everywhere, chasing everything down. Um, it sounded like in in the post match interviews, um, she she said it was the best she's ever she's ever played, and it's tough to argue with that. I'm wondering, Carl, how much do you think we can ascribe this pretty lopsided? two and two result to Simona having what's possibly the match of her life versus Serena having I mean, maybe her worst performance in a slam final. I mean, she's not accustomed to losing these and certainly not accustomed to losing these quickly. Um, she didn't look very good to me. Uh, and I mean, she acknowledged she wasn't, she wasn't at her best, but what, what, what's your take here? Do you, I'm not sure how to phrase this question exactly, so you can just start talking anytime. Um, I mean, how much is this Simona good? How much is this is Serena bad? There you go. You got there. Yeah. <laughs> Throw away the grammar. Just end it with a question mark. I probably don't have much different to say. I mean, I think that Simona at that level would have beaten a significantly better Serena yesterday, but... It might have been three sets. It might have been, you know, seven, six, six, four, or something like that. So, you know, I put Simona as champion down to her being great. I mean, I take her at her word, but also at my eyes that this was the best match she's played. Now, you've seen way more of her matches than I have, so you can weigh in. But I think one of the best matches she's played has to be the semifinal against Vitalina. And Serena wasn't in that match. So you could say, okay, so Simona was playing at a very high level coming into the final. And obviously, these things don't always... Um, transfer like the consistency within a match isn't even that high let alone for match to match but I saw a lot of what I saw against Fidelina continue against Serena and then you know and then some so um, I think what I think what was also telling was how calm and even mildly upbeat Serena was afterwards in saying like hey she was just outstanding I mean there have been other big matches Serena lost where I think she didn't feel that way about her opponent's game. But I think there was no other way to feel about Simona's in terms of Serena's level. Like maybe the question is more like who, which conceivable final opponents could she have beaten playing their kind of average game. And I think there are players in the top 10, certainly in the top 20 who Serena would have beaten playing the way she did yesterday. But if she wants to, you know, cash in on these opportunities, and she can't control who her opponent is and how well they're playing, uh, she, she does need to up it a bit. That said, I think it's still mostly positive for her. I mean, that's three out of five finals that she's made at Grand Slams, and that's a lot of opportunities she's giving herself and doing them sometimes under difficult circumstances without that many matches going into the tournament. So I think, you know, it's sort of how I feel about I mean, it's more so Federer because Federer played really well and almost won the final. But for both of them, just the fact that they're still giving themselves these opportunities and playing in these matches is uh, pretty impressive. And in Serena's case, she's making enough finals that she's still going to have a good shot to win one, maybe two, and break the record. Yeah. I mean, so one thing I saw on Twitter a lot since the this whenever Serena's in a slam final or close to a slam final, uh, of course, we we mentioned Margaret Court's 24 slams, and, and a lot of people were referring to that as a fake record. I don't know how seriously they were referring to it as one. I'm assuming that's just because those slams happened a long time ago. I'm not sure if there's more to it than that, than just the, the level of competition was a lot lower. I know that some... That, 
people have plenty to disagree with when it comes to Margaret Court's um, personal and political views. But just setting that aside, do you think that the the twenty four slams is, is is a legit benchmark for for women's tennis that I mean, it, it's equal to let's say if Serena got to twenty four today. Oh, I mean, th- these long-term historical records are always going to be tough to compare. I mean, we, to take a very different sport and a different scenario, there's a very good argument about a lot of baseball records that happened during the time that baseball was segregated. And so not many of the best players weren't weren't playing in the major leagues. Um, you know, then there's just like number pool of, of talent and, and, you know, overall – uh, financial incentives, which drive more people into the sport and, and to play it at a high level. So, I mean, there are all sorts of things that change from year to year, and especially from decade to decade or half century to half century. But, you know, I think in the Margaret Court case, there's one, there's a very specific point, which still does not make it a fake record. I mean, that's like calling a news story you don't like fake news. Um, but, you know, she won 11 Australian Opens or Australian Championships, uh, depending on the part of her career. The name changed, and in a lot of those tournaments, the draws were very small, so you didn't have to win as many matches, and the percentage of players who were Australian was maybe 80s, 90s, just really, really high. And they, you know, they, they're grand slams, they all count, you can only play who's in front of you, all that's true, but that is such a difference from how uh, competitive all the fields are today, uh, not to mention the bigger talent pool, the bigger prize money, everything else, that... I think that makes it hard for people to to equate them and compare them. Yeah, those are all fair points. Um, I, I had forgotten about the Australian Open issue, which which is a, a lot stronger than just comparing eras. I mean, when when you look at the at the, the overall argument that yes, the there was less competition, the the fields were weaker. In some cases, there weren't as many matches. Then some of those same arguments apply to Chrissy. They apply to Martina Navratilova. They apply to Steffi Graf. The Australian Open one doesn't, so I'm not I'm not conflating all these issues. But I do wonder sometimes if you throw out some of the records that you don't like, or you say that they're too old to be relevant, then um, it's it's tough to know when you stop. I mean, to to carry on with your analogy with segregated baseball, then I mean it's a it's 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 a it's a really good analogy because not only do you have this period of time before 1947 when baseball was totally segregated. You also have a period of time for probably the 20 years after that when it's not fully integrated either. I mean, it, it's it's different levels of integrated between between the late 40s and, you know, I don't know, at least the, the mid-60s and maybe later. But if you throw out everything before 1947, I mean, you have to wonder, do the 50s count too if, you know, some number of teams are, are not integrated at all? Some number of teams have just, just one African-American player. I mean... They're complicated issues in both both tennis and baseball, um, but I, I I was curious. We thought about that. Um, so we have two surprise winners in a row: Ashley Barty at the French and Simona Halep at Wimbledon. Which one do you think is the bigger surprise? I th- I think Ashley Barty. Uh, I mean, Barty was coming in playing so well, playing at the level of the best player in the world, based on Elo and just, you know, glancing at her at her records, but had not done much on clay. She, she had a decent clay record, but I mean, Halep has made, has gone deep at Wimbledon several times before. 
and has, you know, came in having won a slam title, which Barty didn't, and having been number one. So, I mean, maybe it came a little more out of the blue just in terms of current form, but she certainly had the record of someone who could be the best in the world and who could um, who could go deep at Wimbledon. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I, th- I think we were we were talking about Barty some before the French just... You know, to, because she she was at or near the top of the ELO leaderboard. So I mean, if you're talking about favorites going to a slam, you have to put her on the list. But we were repeatedly mentioning her lack of of match play and notable success on clay. So uh, that that seems reasonable to me. So going into the U.S. Open, we have we have Serena, who's made several recent Slam finals. We have Halep as the Wimbledon champion, and Barty as the French Open champion. Um, Naomi Osaka as the defending champion and Australian Open titleist. Uh, you've got other players in the mix who are playing as well as some of these other names. Do you have a, a favorite at this point for New York? I mean, I think the simplest answer is, is Barty, and so that's what I'll go with. Like, she's still... Number one, she still had the best season. Um, she's had good results on hard courts before, and she—it was dis- somewhat disappointing her Wimbledon performance, but it wasn't—it wasn't like a flame out. And she had some some really one-sided wins too. So, and you know, the player she lost to, uh, Allison Risk, was—I um, <laughs> think—I think we even maybe said in last week's episode, like, could be the most extreme example of a player who would have very different ranking in career if more of the season was on grass. So uh, maybe not a lot of um, disappointment there. And another thing we said in last week's episode was that Barty looked unbeatable up to that point. <laughs> like we did not see that one, that upset. No, no, we, I'm all. not saying we predicted it. I'm just saying no shame in losing to risk on grass. And Serena almost lost to her and, or at least it was a very close three set match. And um, yeah, I mean, it could be that if Barty had a different draw, she made it to the semis or finals. Yeah, and I didn't I didn't bring that up to as a as an argument against what you were saying. I brought it up to to concur that like there's a lot of good for Barty to take away from this. Uh, I mean, through her first three matches, she looked really strong, and then she she ran into one of the best few players in the draw, one of the few players who who could beat her, like you say. Um, so Barty's the favorite going into the U.S. Open. What do you think? about the the Corey Goff run. We talked about that some last week and and we we predicted and it ended up being right that she she wouldn't be able to compete really against Simona Halep, but I'm guessing she's not going to play again until the US Open. Maybe she said that she she's under a really severe limit for how many tournaments she can play before her 16th birthday. Uh but I'm sure that the media is going to be all over her. Um, everyone's going to be watching her matches. Do you think we could see another like fourth round type run from her at the next slam? Yeah, it's definitely possible. Uh, I mean, it, it'll be somewhat different in that it'll be the, the home slam and there'll be a lot of attention paid to her. On, on the other hand, it seemed like all of Britain kind of got involved in that story and that she had a, a whole lot of attention at Wimbledon already. So maybe, maybe she'll be just fine on that front and then it'll depend on the draw and she could certainly have an off day. I mean, she, she uh, did not look great against Hertz against Herzog and, and could have lost that match and um, could have lost it kind of one-sidedly. So 
I think it would be there would be no shame in her losing her first round match in straight sets. She'd still be playing someone probably much older and more experienced. But yeah, it wouldn't it wouldn't shock me at the same time if she made the fourth round again. And uh, you know, presumably just with so much more experience on hard courts too. Uh, you know, we were talking about young players and experience on grass. And while she didn't go and win the thing, it was a really nice run for someone with limited grass experience. But she she's played a lot at the U.S. Open and a lot on courts like those. So we had a, a few women who had various levels of disappointing Wimbledons who were expected to be in the mix. I mean, I mentioned Osaka, who holds two of the four slams, but she crashed out in the first round. Um, Kerber lost in the second round. Karolina Pliskova was the, the biggest upset of the fourth round to Karolina Mukova. Um, I mean, very different situations for those three, but it does highlight how, how balanced this field is. And we can talk about a bunch of names as, as favorites for the U.S. Open and then leave five more off. Um, but I, I'm, I'm curious about, well, let's start with Karolina Pliskova. We, we talked about her going into Wimbledon as maybe not the favorite, but, but one of the big names to watch out for, someone who, who looked almost invincible on grass. Um, she's also had a deep run at the U.S. Open. She can play well on that surface, too. Uh, she lost a really tight match to Karolina Mukova. That would, came really close to being the first 12-12 singles match, but it ended at 13-11. Uh, do you think she's going to be able to bounce back from this one and, and remain in the mix as, let's say, like a top five hardcore player this um, for the rest of the season? Yeah, I see no reason why not. I mean, she's had all sorts of tough losses in her career. That's that's what a career as good as hers without a slam title looks like. So I I think she'll be fine. She's pretty, She can be pretty um, even-keeled about these sorts of things. I, I She's... And she's made the U.S. Open final, which was a much, much tougher loss because um, she came really close to winning that. So I I don't think this will stay with her, but it, it was a missed opportunity because she could have won the tournament. Yeah, I guess we could we could keep saying that about a lot of people. <laughs> Most people would not have beaten Simona Halep the way she was playing yesterday. But if it had been Kerber across the net or Pliskova across the net or Ashley Barty across the net, then... Maybe she wouldn't have ended up playing that way, or maybe she wouldn't have been in the in the final at all. Um, I mean, it it still feels like a, a very very wide open field. Um, let's see. I feel like since we are are wrapping up a Grand Slam, and I've been writing a little bit about doubles, we should we should spend some time talking about doubles here. Uh, the men's doubles final was a, a five setter yesterday. Um, and we got to see Nicolas Mahu play another marathon match, on this time on center court. But what I ended up writing about the most was mixed doubles because we had the Serena Andy Andy Murray team in the in the mixed doubles draw. So now we have ELO ratings from mixed doubles. And we had uh, our winners ended up being Yvonne Dodig and Letitia Chan. Um they were very highly rated. I think they, they were one of the few teams that was actually rated higher by my ELO system than Murray and Williams. Murray and Williams were, were ranked fourth of, of all the teams in the draw. And I'm curious, like, I feel like my, my having a database and having ELO ratings for mixed doubles is really just scratching the, the, scratching the surface of 
of what could be done if we had more mixed doubles data. We're never going to have it because they just don't play that much mixed doubles. But, um, but I wonder, like, looking at just the the magnet, the the is magnitude the right word? The the types of, of forecasts we're making, like lots of, of very of, of very close forecasts, like in the fifty five forty five range. And then a few favorites like the Jamie Murray, Bethany Maddox Sands team, Murray Williams, um, Dodig Chan, uh, Suarez, Melichar was the, the fourth one of the top four, I believe. They were often like 80-20 favorites over over lesser or unknown teams. Does that feel right to you? I mean, does it seem like the system has like the unpredictability of mixed doubles pegged about right? Yeah, that seems right. There's so much that is specific to the format, including just the limited experience of partnerships. There's some of that in men's and women's doubles, but not at all to the same extent. And then there's also, I think, relatedly, just much more uncertainty about how much teams care about winning. I mean, there's there's less on the line. Just about everyone is entered in a bigger event. Um so yeah, I mean, I think I think it makes sense that you would have that spread. Um, what do you think about the the how do I put this? The balance between men and women. Let's say uh, what one of the first times I I ran it, I I think oh, I don't remember the exact parameters that spit this out, but I think the the first leaderboard I saw of active or recently active mixed doubles players, the top six or something ended up being women. It didn't end up being that way when I narrowed down the 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 list to people who'd played in a 2018 or 2019 mixed doubles draws. But I think when I when I looked at anyone who'd played in the last five years, the top six players were women. And I think the way to interpret that is that since there are, since it is kind of a, mus- a musical chairs game of, of players switching partners opportunistically from slam to slam, uh, I think we interpret that as as the quality of the of the female half of the team has more influence on the result than the quality of the the male half. Maybe there's just um, less less of a range of of um, of strength on the men's side than the range on the women's side. I'm not, I'm not sure exactly what to do with that, but does that make sense to you that that could be a a factor that the, the, that the quality of the woman influences the result more than the quality of the man? Yeah, I could definitely see that, including maybe things like, um, you know, just being able to return the serve and, and serve well enough to, to hold like the breaks come more often on the women's serve, so those are those feel like the higher um, leverage games, I guess, or just you know the, the games where action is more likely to happen. I mean, I think another big factor though is just that more great women play mixed doubles than great men. That you know a- Andy Murray brought so much attention because it's been a while since you've had you know a, one of the all-time great type singles players in the mixed draw and i think best of three has a lot to do with that that it's just it's more conceivable to enter all three draws um if you're you know a woman who's great at singles and at doubles so it's the same reason there are probably more women who are great at singles and doubles because they have a a chance to play both at at slam so um i I think that's got to be a big factor too yeah, I didn't think about that, but but that that makes a lot of sense. I mean, to that point, the number one woman of all time uh, on on my list was Billie Jean King. Um, Serena and Venus are are both in the top twenty five of all time. Um, 
I mean, this this might be a little fluky, but Yelena Ostapenko was was on the losing end of the final today. Uh, so another quality player in in both women's doubles and women's singles who's excelling in mixed. And and yeah, you don't get that much on the men's side, which which is a shame. And it makes you wonder if there's an opportunity for a tournament like Indian Wells or Miami with their their almost two week format and the fact that they they managed to get a lot of top players to play doubles if they had a mixed event, whether some players would maybe enter the mixed instead of the men's or women's doubles and, and we get more of these superstar dream teams, maybe in exchange for appearance fees or something. But um, but I think you're with me there, Carl, that really any excuse for more mixed doubles is a win for the sport. Yeah, and Ben Rothenberg wrote in the New York Times about the potential effect of the Andy Murray-Serena Williams partnership on getting more tour events to more more than zero tour events with combined men's and women's draws to con- consider mixed and that the Washington tournament director, I think, or just one of the decision makers in Washington anyway, was 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 pretty pumped about it, although it wasn't going to happen this year. It was too soon. Do you think that's something we might really see happen, um, getting getting mixed at a tour event? You know, there's so many tour events now that have various kinds of exhibition or sort of exhibition events, whether it's, you know, seniors or or, um, boys or girls events, uh, just, I think, as ways to, like, have something to see in the later rounds when there aren't as many uh, matches happening at any one time. And I could see something like that to start and then maybe just see if there's enough interest. So maybe at the start, there's like two or four teams in the draw and they play. Well, two would be, you know, one match, but you can imagine four teams either playing a semis in a final or a round robin or something like that. I think there there could be uh, that could be a good way to sort of test interest for both from players and from fans. Yeah, sort of like Madrid doing the tiebreak tens thing that fits the same sort of schedule window uh, that, that you're talking about where they got a lot of big stars played it, including Simona Halep. I think Sharapova did it one year. Uh and and it either took place the weekend before Madrid, or I think that was when it happened. But it is it is interesting that, that tournaments do end up with these sorts of exhibitions that that frame the tournament, often the weekend before, that seem to draw more crowds and more media attention than much of the tournament itself. Like if they have a a legends match or something, then that can that can get more press attention than the quarterfinals, even though that's in theory where the action's at. So maybe maybe it's going to be that too. It seems like it would be a challenge for most tournaments just to to get enough of the top players to be interested in committing to spend more time there, because um, they often don't want to show up any earlier than they have to, and then once they lose, they don't want to stick around any longer. And if you're doing an exhibition sort of thing, you can't have half your players just take off if they get upset in the second round. But yeah, I mean, it, it seems like the potential is there. Um, I, I struggle to see many tour events experimenting, even if I would like to see them do it. And it's I think it's a good idea for them. I think structurally it's very difficult. So I kind of lost track of time there. We're, we're up to our one-hour mark. Uh, Carl, we've touched on a lot of things, but we've left about half of our outline untouched. Um, some of the, the articles I wrote this past week on, on the website uh, we also didn't mention, which is, which is okay. Some of them maybe didn't deserve any follow-up on the podcast. But... Any any final thoughts or final issues that you want to put on the table before we wrap this one up? Two quick things. One, on your blog post and research in general, I think when there isn't a Grand Slam to wrap up, maybe one week we can 
do at least part of the episode on on some of those findings because I think there's there's a lot to discuss. Uh, and then secondly, while we were recording, the tournament really did wrap up for good. The women's doubles final, which was postponed by 24 hours, um, but at least unlike the mixed final, was not moved to court one, wrapped up. And I am terrible at pronunciation, but um, maybe you Say can help me. <laughs> yep. And Barbara Striskova? <laughs> Barbara Striskova. It is a tough team, yeah. Um, well, a tough I, Czech name and a tough time. I shouldn't say, name. like, you know, it's not tough for people from those countries, but it's tough for me, a dumb American. Uh, congratulations to them. And uh, they won the final match of Wimbledon, which is pretty cool. And th- that wraps up this, this tournament. So it seems like a good way to wrap up my contribution to this episode. Well, thank you as always, Carl. Um, I'm glad we could we could do this while still riding the adrenaline wave of the men's final, with a little final secondary wave from the women's du- women's doubles final. Uh, great fortnight for Barbara Streetsova with her first Slam semifinal, and then also um, also the women's doubles title, which I think gives her the number one ranking in women's doubles. I uh, think that's right. Which is, I think we said a couple weeks ago when we were talking about potential mixed doubles partners for Andy, I speculated that she already was number one just because she seemed to be winning every week. So maybe it was a foregone conclusion, but this is certainly a stylish way to do it, is to, to win the Wimbledon title and secure number one. So, so yeah, congrats to her. Um, thanks, everyone, for listening. As always, this will wrap up our Wimbledon coverage, but as always... Um, Keep tabs on tennisabstract.com. I've been writing a lot this past week, so maybe you missed a blog post or two here or there, and I'm going to try to keep it going a little bit, if not at the same intensity level um, throughout the summer. And there will be a podcast next week as well, so be sure to keep an eye out for that. Jeff? Thanks for listening. Yeah, Carl. Last question. Will Sabalenka be ranked higher at the end of the year in singles or doubles? I've got to say doubles. I don't want it to be true, but... I mean, maybe she'll be number one in doubles and number two in singles. That's there's a nice symmetry to that. Yeah, but yeah, she did another another strong slam from her. I I never would have dreamed of this this doubles dream team of Elise Mertens and Arena Sabalenka, but hey, I'll take it. Uh, I, I I always said that Sabalenka was going to go on the string of winning twenty slams in a row, and I guess I never specified it would be in singles. So maybe I'll be proven right in the most unlikely under-the-radar way. So yeah, that's definitely a good note to end on. Anytime we can talk about Sabalenka, it makes for a good episode. So thank you, Carl. Again, thanks everyone for, uh, thank you everyone for listening, and uh, we'll see you next week.